Hello and welcome to Here's One I Made Earlier. I'm Jim Irvin. Today's episode is a break from what we'd normally do because we're talking about a song that I was involved in writing, This Is When I'm Alone, released in 2010 and co-written with writer and producer Julian Emery and my guest today, Lissy. Born Elizabeth Morris, raised in Rock Island, Illinois, she quickly discovered a talent for singing, starring in a production of Annie, age nine. Then after a tricky time in high school and dropping out of university in Colorado, she moved to LA to pursue a career in music. It wasn't all smooth sailing, things didn't happen overnight. A deal with Maverick Records in 2004 ended abruptly with an unreleased album in the can and she was back to square one. But in 2008, she secured a fresh deal with the UK arm of Columbia Records and came over to Britain to write, which is how Julian and I met her in October that year and ended up writing several songs together for her debut album, Catching a Tiger, which eventually came out in June 2010. Since then, she's released a string of albums of her own songs, two for Columbia and three released independently, and several EPs of her celebrated cover versions. Her most recent release was When I'm Alone, the piano retrospective, which featured new versions of some favourite compositions with just her extraordinary voice and a piano. 2020 was supposed to include a celebration of Catching a Tiger's 10th anniversary with a world tour, but obviously that's been postponed to who knows when. However, I'm delighted to say it's given her the time to join us here today. Lissy, welcome. Thank you. Hello. I'm so happy to be with you. Thanks for having me. Where are you talking to us from? I am sitting in my house in Iowa. And how long have you been there? I bought a farm in northeastern Iowa back in 2015. Yeah, I've lived here for, you know, four or five years now. Your followers on Instagram get regular tours around your vegetable garden and other sites on the farm. Has lockdown been a strain for that reason? Do you feel suddenly the responsibility of 50 acres stretched out in front of you? I will find that just the general collective sense of like grief of the, of the pandemic, like not just my own grief, but like the collective and personal kind of took some of my motivation and enthusiasm from me this summer. Like, whereas normally I think I have a little more delighted. Um, whereas I felt like this summer I'd be in the garden all day. And instead of wanting to cook, I would just go to McDonald's. <laughs> be like, <laughs> be like, Oh, I have all this salad and I've spent this whole day outside weeding and, and I like never eat McDonald's. That being said though, I had these like beautiful sunflowers on my hillside. And if I would go for a walk at sunset with my dog, I would have these very nice moments of almost zenness of like, you know, nothing's ever in our control. Like all there is, is the present moment and, and nature is helpful in, in returning me to that kind of state of acceptance and presence. Have you managed to do any writing in these last months? You know, I had this breakup this summer and, and you know me that over the years I've had my woes with romance and that's usually where a lot of the songs have have come from um yes and and this this relationship you know it was different like it, it felt really solid I was really kind of shocked with how it all ended but then I also didn't really feel like it was appropriate at this point in time with like you know and when George Floyd was murdered and a lot of the like protests and riots over here and just this unveiling of the racial inequity and the the white supremacy, frankly, and like just a lot of these really big, heavy things in the midst of this pandemic and this president who's just triggering everyone with his cruelty. I'm like, I don't know if I should really write a song about my ex-boyfriend right now. (laughs) (laughs) That being said, I am putting the single out. I did some covers and I covered Martha Wainwright's Bloody Motherfucking Asphalt. Oh, yeah. It was interesting because I thought it was about my ex-boyfriend, but then 
it kind of, as I lived with it over the summer and I got more space, I saw that actually this kind of is about just anyone that's sort of invalidating your experience and, and dehumanizing you. And then it felt very like akin to just everything around this election and, and, and groups of people who've been dehumanized. And then beyond that, my friend made a music video for it, like in outer space. And then I could hear the song as being sung almost from like the view of mother nature. <laughs> yes. And so I felt like now moving forward, I may be able to write a song that might seem like one thing, but actually could be a lot of different things for a lot of different people. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So maybe it won't feel as self-indulgent once I start doing it. It's a real cathartic song, that one, isn't it? I imagine it's a joy to sing it. Oh, yeah. You feel like you want to like just set something on fire. <laughs> um, how far is your farm from where you grew up so i live about three hours north of where i grew up you came from a a line of barbershop singers and hobos is that right <laughs> kind of yeah <laughs> tell me about that yeah my well my dad's dad was a choir teacher but he was a barbershop quartet um singer and I can't remember what year it was, the Vikings, they were actually like the international champion one year. So they like would fly around in their own plane doing their barbershop. But he was always singing and dancing and was in musicals. So that's probably like seeing him in musicals from a young age got me interested in wanting to try out for plays and stuff. Um, and then his dad, you know, was kind of a mystery, but there was a stretch of time where he was a hobo. He hopped trains and no one really knew where he went and the Rock Island line, you know, where I'm from, Rock Island, Illinois. And I kind of try to get more information, but no one really has much for me. So I'm thinking, I don't know, one of these days I should try to do one of those ancestry things and, and try to find out more. But yeah, he would hop trains and head west. It sounds perfect DNA for a folk singer, doesn't it? Perfect ancestry. What else were you growing up with? What, what other music was around the house when you were little? You know, I was listening to lots of musicals, like so Music Man. Yeah, it's so funny because the Music Man, I mean, that whole thing just takes place in Iowa. In the beginning number, they're like on the Rock Island line. They're going to Davenport, Iowa and like, oh, you know, all these places I grew up. When I was nine, I was in Annie in like a dinner theater production. And um, King, you know, I was in The King and I and The Little Mermaid and, you know, got into high school. That was in Rent came out and that was brilliant. And so I was pretty into musicals um, and like pop music as a kid and rock music, really. Did you get a taste for applause? Yeah, no, I mean, I think I'm the youngest of four and my, I kind of have a big kind of loud, chaotic family. So, you know, I had a lot of emotions that my well-meaning parents just didn't know what to do with. And so I probably felt invalidated in ways and would like wander off into the woods, make up songs and was always trying to be like, can I perform for you? Like getting up on pianos, trying to sing <laughs> for people. And it really was a good way to get people to be quiet and listen to me, to make them like listen to me sing. But it wasn't like the attention. It wasn't like I was, oh, look at me. It was more like, I want to show you my heart. I want you to understand me. Like even from a young age, it wasn't, let me put on a cute outfit and entertain you. It's like, I want you to like see into my soul, understand me. So it was definitely like really, I think, was a way of trying to express myself. How old were you when you realized that you had a really good voice? I think probably like as young as five or six. It's just like I had this big voice and I could sing and I would 
my mom always said my eyes would just like light up when I started singing and I just had so much like confidence when I'd sing. And then so that translated then into when I got the role in Annie. And, you know, that's a vocally demanding role. And I killed it. I was nine and they dyed my hair red and it was like no microphones in like a music dinner theater. And I, I just I was able to really fill the room with my big voice. So you had a started doing it sort of professionally a little bit in your teens is that right I did my dinner theater stuff which was kind of professional when I was like nine and 14 but when I was in college I met this DJ named DJ Harry you know I was showing up at every music club my freshman sophomore year of college fake ID every show I was there meeting the security guards before you knew it like I could just go into any show like I was cool I was in but you know there were some guys who were just like oh like she's just a groupie and it's like no I'm a musician so I would get in and I'd want to meet the bands and I would befriend the bartenders and before I knew it like I was kind of had wiggled my way into being like opening up for bands that came through and through the process of getting to like open up for these different acts I met this guy DJ Harry and he was putting out an album and we co-wrote a song on it called All My Life that ended up being on like some TV shows and was in a movie and and it was a indicator to me like oh you can actually like do this okay and then so I decided not to go back to college when I got to LA it was like that song that I had done in, in my early college years I actually got like a decent sized check from that. And that was really encouraging. Like, actually, I bought my first dog. I didn't rescue him, Byron. He was bought with the money that I got from a song of mine being in the TV show Veronica Mars. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Um, Dear Byron. I know, sweet Byron. He was like the love of my life. I think I had a dream about him last night. After All My Life, Lucy entered into a deal with Maverick Records, which petered out after a change of leadership at parent company Warner Brothers. And then she put out her own EP and worked with DJ Morgan Page on another successful track, The Longest Road. And in 2008, she was snapped up by Columbia in the UK, who flew her to Britain to start work on her debut album, which became Catching a Tiger. I'd been to see Columbia's head of A&R, Mike Smith, and he'd played me some Lucy tracks that I really liked. And I'd recently met producer and musician Julian Emery, and I suggested the three of us might make a good team to collaborate on something. So a session was booked into Rollover Studios in Queen's Park, London for October the 23rd, 2008. Where was your head at at that point? You were in the UK, you were fish out of water in that respect. What were you thinking the day that we first met? It was interesting because I, you know, I had this deal and I was really excited, but I was also kind of hung up on this guy that I was dating on and off in LA and I had Byron. So it was really kind of like, 
homesick when I came over because I, I think it was only the second time I'd come over to the UK and was so jet lagged and was basically set up on like three weeks of Monday through Friday, every day and night, blind dates of co-writing with people. And prior to that, I hadn't ever co-written. I think initially I thought like, well, I wouldn't know how to do that. I write by myself, but now I can barely write a song without a co-writer, to be honest. So I'm glad that I opened up my mind to the beauty of co-writing early on, you know, because I didn't really have a good enough assortment of songs, apparently, to put together my first album <laughs> on my own. And it's true. I, I'll, I'll, I can see that. I feel so like heartsick for it, actually. In hindsight, it was such a wonderful time, even though it was kind of excruciating. I was just so tired all the time. I was so jet lagged because I would drink too much wine and then I'd stay up all night and then I'd like want to sleep all day. And but it, it was good for the songwriting in the end because it gave me like some emotion to put into the mix, you know. And it, I mean, England just, it was so different. It, now I go there and it, see, it feels like a second home. But when I went over the first time, I was like, oh my God, it's like Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> so British, so like a movie or something, you know, so foreign. And everybody talked weird. Yeah. And I, I remember you having culture shock at, the, at, that, at that point. I remember you being really freaked out by what you were seeing. I mean, it was only your third day in, in London or something when we met. You looked completely shell-shocked. I feel like whenever we see each other, we recap this. Like I was probably being a kind of moody. Like we started writing and then I didn't want to come back. But like they made me <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, you know what what happened. Well, no, I, I remember that you'd had a terrible session the day before. You walked in the room and you pretty much laid the terms down there and then. You said, right, I'm doing all the top line. Uh, I've got this song that I want to work on. And you were trying to basically wrestle back some control i think you felt you'd been a bit steamrolled in the previous couple of days is that is that right that very well could have been true and i don't exactly remember but i i do know that i, I liked you guys and i thought you were really nice but i also felt like yeah we spent we spent a lot of time trying to work on that christina song and then just sort of as inside we had a little blurb of when i'm alone julian already had the music in his computer and i had just kind of been riffing spontaneously and I think that was where the magic was. And it was like, I was supposed to come back for the second session then so that we could finish that when I'm alone magic. And I think even with that session being like, oh, I'm really tired. I just, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> and then <laughs> thank goodness I did. And I think to Ollie, you know, my A&R, Ollie's like, you have to do this. You, you need to go there. And he would be like, you need to don't drink any wine tonight. Go to bed early. God bless them now, because I think at the time it's like, stop telling me what to do. What I remember of of that day is that we worked on this Christina song, which you'd already started and you you, you wanted to finish it off. And we kind of finished it, what it been about sort of 2.33 in the afternoon. And, um, and we went out for a late lunch and we found somewhere that was doing pizza. And you really perked up after pizza. <laughs> 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 which I've I have <laughs> since yeah. since learned is like catnip for you, isn't it, pizza? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. It's funny because I'm here looking at my new composition notebook that I'm going to write my songs in, and it's got little pictures of pepperoni pizza on it. Well, there you go. So it's it's perfect. 
yeah. absolutely perfect so so the, the the pizza really kind of brought you alive and we came back into the into the studio <laughs> and uh, and and sort of sat down and go well, should we do something else and I think Julian being Julian he just wanted to go home he was kind of reluctant to do anything else and I, and I said play that thing that you that you bought in earlier Jules because that's really good and and he played the diddle 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 and you started singing mm. over it and we were off that's how I, I recall it. But I'd forgotten that thing that you were saying about trying to get you back the next day. I had forgotten about the pizza until you reminded me. And that makes me laugh so hard because it's true. Because I think, too, I'd been like, I'd tried to get to breakfast. And it's like, the eggs and bacon are different. Like, I don't know how to eat this food. And then when we found pizza, it was like, okay, I found some food. They're like, I love pizza. And then I think also just taking those breaks anytime you're writing and you get stuck is a good idea. That was when I think I really opened up to what co-writing could be because I think I thought like I needed to come in with some idea and like some chords and mishmash a song together. But that what was so cool that day was that he, him being able to give me something that I could just like riff and improvise over until we found the right melody is what I love about co-writing to this day because it, there's no preconceived notions and, and you can just organically stumble upon something really, really great collectively that I feel like I, I can't really necessarily do that often by myself. I remember people being excited, but I don't know that I knew how good it was yet because I think even knowing that we had something promising starting, still I had to be like tempted to come back to finish it. But thank goodness I came back and I finished it. Because really, the song that like this made made my career. I turn my back, you were gone in a flash like you always do. What I remember at the end of that first day, we had the verse that was pretty much you singing along to the riff. So you were going da 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 really quickly, right at the beginning, and and then you had the we had the when I'm alone with you chorus, but it was almost implied that we were going to add to that later that we were going to do something to that. It was just like a kind of a starting point for the chorus. Uh, that's how it felt at the time. Oh yeah, like that, like that. That it needed a chorus still. Well, no, it needed some explanation. Yeah. When I'm alone with you, something happens or da-da-da. You know, there's something else. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. and uh, that's how we left it, but sort of exciting. And I think we all went home and listened to it and went, hmm, it's good. And then when we got back the second session, eventually, once you were persuaded to turn up 
um, we all had the same note, which was slow down that first verse. <laughs> Do you remember? We put the verse into half time. No, I feel bad because yeah, you remember it so well. And I'm like, how do you have such a good memory? <laughs> <laughs> well, good. the only reason I remember it really well is that it is one of the few times where I got shivers writing that song. I really knew that it was something great straight away. Yeah. And that's why I remember it so so well, because it was a it was a real charge of and it was one of the first songs that I'd written with Julian and, and obviously with with you. And I remember thinking, wow, this job's great. Conjure something like that out of out of nothing. That's brilliant. I've got to do this some more. Yes, absolutely. The second session was at the dairy in Brixton. Do you remember that funny little room in, in there? And yeah. And we wrote um, In Sleep there as well. It might even have been the same day or the same two days. Yeah, I remember I remember, I remember. remember very clearly sitting in Brixton writing In Sleep because I feel like that one came pretty quickly. Like, yeah. I feel like once we kind of – it was like we, we realized that we were a dream team after we were able to, like, get the momentum of When I'm Alone, and then I feel like In Sleep came super fast. Yeah. And Cuckoo. Yeah. Yeah. Like I feel like that's any time we've written, we kind of like have to go through the painful part to get the thing that then <laughs> suddenly we're we're like in pain and then we turn a corner and then we like start getting the momentum and then yeah, like we'll write like four songs in like two days. And I love it. I've always felt with you as well that it's about catching the kind of window with you is you've got like 90 minutes of intense focus. And then you spend a lot of time trying to think of excuses not to do it, you know, like go out <laughs> for a cigarette or a pizza yeah, or, sure. <laughs> or take the dog to the vet. Of, yeah. No, it's true. It's weird. Being in the studio, writing half the time, touring, like it all just is excruciating. <laughs> but. <laughs> But it has to be done. Sometimes I'll go in the studio and it's a metaphor for my life where it's like, I just want to know how it's going to end up. Like, I want to know what it's going to sound like when it's done. I don't know if that makes sense. It's like kind of how I am in my life in general. I got to work on it. Knowing that like, you just kind of have to take a deep breath and just start from the beginning and take it a step at a time. And eventually it will reveal itself to be what it's going to be. You know how it goes. Like you get a melody in your head, but someone else is humming a melody and then you lose the melody and <laughs> yeah. then you almost get tense. You know, it's like, Oh, I have it. Oh no. And I, now I forgot it. And like, Oh, what, like what's this, this one line going to be. And sometimes you don't really know that you like something until three days later and you listen to it and you realize how much you love it or what it could be once you take it to a producer. And, but you're, you, I just laugh so hard when you're like, that you have about 90 minutes of focus with me before I'm like need another piece of pizza and a cigarette. <laughs> and then I'm like ready for my wine. There was a tremendous amount of anxiety in the process and, and energy with you in the, in those early sessions of, ah, <laughs> what am I doing here? Ah, you know, I know poor little me. <laughs> and when you think of that though, like, putting someone in a room with all of these. And then back then it was like, I only wrote with men. Like I was never set up on any co-writes with any women then. Yeah. And usually men that were older than me. And so it's like me getting in the room with these total strangers and be like, let me tell you about this guy that I really like. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm really sad. 
and he doesn't want to be my boyfriend. And like, you know, for me just to have to come in and tell these total strange men, like, these are all the details of my personal life. And I'm like going through all these things. You do go through that process and then you're able to kind of find those people who are willing to put up with me and who will help me take my pain and turn it into a beautiful song, you know? And I like this metaphor when I'm gardening, it's like, you know, the most beautiful flowers literally grow from shit. You know, you want, you want your compost to be just disgusting. pure, pure manure. Yeah. You just, the, you would just want it, the most beautiful things grow out of shit. Like literally when in the garden and I, and I felt like I could kind of come with all of this, like anxiety and pain and loss and rejection and whoa and all these things. And then had, was able to find these like really key partners along the way to be like, we will help you turn that into a song, you know, and we'll have some pizza and <laughs> we'll have some fun while we do it. And, there's, um, there's an interesting d- dynamic going on in the room when it's you, me and Julian as well, isn't there? Because Julian will play the fool, do the dad jokes and just be silly quite a lot of the time because he doesn't want to be there very much either. He's finding it stressful as well <laughs> in certain respects. And and so and then I'm sitting there trying to write down what you're saying and trying to kind of, how can we turn this into the verse or whatever? <laughs> we take it in turns to be the adult in the room, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> so suddenly you'll get you'll get sort of cross and go, stop it, you two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we got to focus, guys. I'll tell Julian off for keep playing Rush or whatever he's doing. We're all being told off and having to kind of get back in the room at the same time. And it's a fascinating thing. I've noticed that a lot with with the writing is that there's a lot of putting it off. And that's part of the creative process, isn't there? They're sort of circling the the moment at which you kind of pounce on an idea. Well, because I think that if we could, we could write a million songs. But I mean, the, the point is to write a really great song. So like, yeah, yeah, sometimes you just have to spend the whole day procrastinating waiting for the right lightning bolt to strike. You know, I think there's been a couple times where maybe we have just written like, okay songs, but I think more often than not, a lot of the time spent like talking or eating or joking around or somehow it ends up creating like the perfect storm for eventual productivity and beautiful music. Like you were saying, we'd sometimes we'd write four or five songs at once, wouldn't we? Two of them will be good and the other two won't be so good, but that's quite a good way of working so that you don't lose... um you know, you don't just get bored trying to find the second verse of something. You've always, whenever you get stuck, you just go on to another song. That method's worked quite well with us over the years, I, I thought. Because otherwise we would all just spin off. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking that right before you said it, there being those kind of bursts, how we did Shameless and Further Away, and I think What's It Like, and yeah, one other one that were on the second album. The Habit. The Habit, yes, which all are awesome songs. And But I wanted to say with When I'm Alone, my memory of doing and finishing that song is like so, so blurry. So I'm so happy that you have such a clear idea of it. Because if anything, I think I was self-conscious that I was just like, God, I'm such a pain in the ass. I'm like so tired. (laughs) Like so (laughs) that like, I'm so okay. But that really being a way that it clicked for me of like, this is a great way to work when you've got. Julian coming in with like this sick guitar loopy lick thing that then I have like all this freedom to explore the melody. And then also you're always good at honing in the melody, but also then, okay, these are the things I'm saying. 
like, I think with They All Want You, like, I didn't write that song with you, but I think I emailed you and was like, I need to finish this song. Like, you came up with the bar fly that's always by in line on They All Want You. Yeah. Because I think that's been how you and I have been able to work well, too, is I have all these lyrics. Like, this is basically what I'm trying to say. I'm kind of stumped. And that it's been great to have you as a sounding board for like, oh, try this one. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's perfect. At some point, we had a conversation about the chorus of When I'm Alone. Yeah, when we left it on the first day, it was When I'm Alone With You, You Make Me Feel, You Make Me Feel. And I remember having this conversation with you saying, should we write something else there? And 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 you thought about it for about 30 seconds. And then you went, no, nah, it's great. <laughs> and and that was a big lesson for me, actually, because it would have been my instinct would have been to explain it a bit more. But the from that moment forward, I've always left information out of choruses and things <laughs> because there's something about yeah. there's something about the blankness of that that's just way more eloquent than filling in the information isn't it it's it is one of those things it's like where we can agonize so much over how things are supposed to be but at the end of the day the thing that sounded best and felt the most sincere was to say when i'm alone with you you know you make me feel you make me feel when i'm alone with you you are the one you are the one i mean those aren't like the most brilliant lyrics in the world but yet when they're sung with the passion in the context of the production, I mean, they say everything that they need to say. Yeah. And that, that is such a gift to realize, like, you know, let's keep it simple, stupid. Like right now in my life, because I kind of find myself back in a similar place that I was when I wrote Catching a Tiger, where like the ground has sort of fallen out from underneath me. Pandemic and politics aside, even it's like my personal life. It feels in this space that some days is terrifying and some days it's really like exciting and hopeful and it's like oh what's the next chapter of my life gonna be when I'm alone came from this anguishing love that ended up not ending well and kind of throwing me into like a psychosis and so to have these songs that then well what's the end result of that excruciating thing I went through (laughs) is like when I'm alone like what number one in Norway in 2010 yeah it was, it's like a song in their culture now. Like it's on their like national sing-along television programs, like young and old, it will know when I'm alone. Like it's one of their songs and it's so amazing to me to see where life can take you. That song doing so well that summer, iTunes song of the year and it just all of the doors that that song opened. I mean, even for me living in Northeast Iowa, like up in Minneapolis, there's a radio station up there that just was giving me so much play that like when I'm alone was like a hit in Minneapolis in 2010. And it's just like a, it's it's a beautiful thing when you can create something from a, a lost and hopeless place and then, and then see how like it can transform your life into something completely different. It's really pretty cool. It was your first taste of making a whole album with a major label, wasn't it? Catching a tiger. So how was that? What went right? What went wrong about the actually making the record from your point of view? That was before Nashville became like the new hotspot or whatever. This is back in 2009. And Sony rented this like mansion in Bellmead and Jakir King, who produced the record, he flew this whole band out from LA who lived there for a month with me. And we tracked everything like live in this house. And they brought all this great gear over from Blackbird to actually make a control room like in the in the house. So it was probably cost a fortune, but it was awesome. 
Um, and then, and then the band after a month, like left. And then I was still there throughout March and April and into May, just kind of living in this mansion by myself with the engineer. <laughs> and then Shakir would come in and, and track people's overdubs mix and stuff. And then I'd give more vocals. So it was like a pretty like luxurious experience, probably compared to like modern day records. Who knows? They hooked it up on record one. Sony did. You know, it was a beautiful record to make, but I mean, I was probably like a mess most of the time. I remember that I really respected Jakir, but I think I kind of drove him nuts. I don't know if he'd say so, but I think I kind of did. I also didn't realize like how Christian everyone was in Nashville at the time. And I feel like I would say things that were inappropriate and realize that I was like offending people. (laughs) I didn't even know it. Because like uh, there are like really nice people and they're Christian and they have different values and I would sort of say these like probably like racy raunchy things just thinking like oh that's like a bunch of musicians hanging out but nope I think I was a little blue. When you went out to do it live, you had your uh, a trio, didn't you, with Eric Sullivan and Lewis Keller? At uh, what point did they come in? Did you put them together after the recording or did you were you playing together already? I couldn't remember. Oh, no. Yeah, Eric and Lewis, my beloved original band members, they didn't come into the mix until like the record was already done and I was kind of getting ready to start touring in uh, the fall of 2009. They did not play on the record and Lewis played bass and drums at the same time, which was really cool. So kick drum hi-hat snare with his feet and bass with his hands. And then Eric, you know, is this excellent lead guitar player. So we were a trio also economically too. It was like the first couple of tours we did, we just would run a car and there was only three of us and we had limited gear and it worked out pretty well, <laughs> you know? They sounded quite different from the record though, didn't they? So did you wish the record had been more like that once you'd been out on the road? No, I mean, I'm so proud of the record. I think it's such a beautifully layered thing. So I thought it was fine that the record was what it was and that the live show was what it was. Like, it never bothered me that I couldn't quite perform it how it was meant to be. You know what I mean? I don't know. Did it ever bother you? It, it, was, it was sort of odd at first hearing uh, how sparse it was. There's no way it could have been the record, but it became this really vibey unit with its own identity, didn't it, very quickly. And that was really exciting. And I think that was kind of almost without meaning to be like a little bit of a gimmick for us, like just coming out on the scene to be able to do that trio thing. Like it was something that caught people's attention. And so the fact that it didn't really sound like the record didn't seem to matter as much somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Do you ever read any of the comments under the YouTube videos of it? No. It's interesting to see what other people's associations are with the songs you know, and just to see how they use it in their lives. I, I've got a couple here. Can I read Can I read a couple to you? Absolutely. This was somebody called Red Bar Chatter said, uh, wrote this a, a few years ago uh, about When I'm Alone. I bought this album shortly before my heavily pregnant wife went into hospital as our firstborn was well overdue. As I drove home from visit, visiting her each evening, I fixated on this song in my car and I remember driving over Trent Bridge, totally lost in her beautiful voice. I will never forget that moment, and it took me away from the worry. Oh, that makes me feel like I could start crying when I hear that. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Especially in a time like now, you know, it's just like, it's really so great to see how music connects people and how much it means to that. <laughs> Man, that's amazing. I'm, that's awesome. 
Uh, here's a couple of other. This is slightly different. They, these won't make you cry. They might make you cross, actually. Someone called Benjamin Tiberius Kirk wrote, It's so good that she actually wrote this. The cynic in me thought, she's just a beautiful puppet. Then I wicked her, and it seems she's a proper musician. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's, oh, that's nice. Well, it's nice, but it's just about kind of... It's, it's a weird thing to write. It's a little bit like uh, <laughs> chauvinist. Yeah. And his assumption is that all, but it's nice to think that he thinks I'm so cute too. Yes. I feel very old these days. <laughs> no, I, uh, I love that though. That's fun. You helped change his mind about women in rock. That's great. Here's a, here's a slightly mysterious one. Somebody called Liri Metacurl has put, I found this song when I'm alone. Uh, because of Yo Sushi, and I remember it for being the theme of the day before the best day of my life, so far and possibly ever. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know what that meant, but cool. I, I just thought, that's great, isn't it, that someone's got this association with the song. I mean, I suppose she was working at Yo Sushi or something, and it was the th song of the day in the, in, the, in the restaurant or something. Before the best day of my life, so far and possibly ever. And she doesn't say what that is. And it's almost like the song. She doesn't give us any more information, but somehow I'm now yeah. <laughs> I'm now fascinated. Yeah, well, that's the thing too. And I, I know that with me with music because so much about music is also like what memories we attach it to that then give it so much meaning that we can carry on like for our entire life through. Yeah. And I think that's so cool. You know, like silly songs that I'll just even remember dancing. You know, the song Man Eater yeah. uh, by Hall and Oates. I remember roller skating to that when I was a kid. And I loved to roller skate. And I was like so fast when I roller skated. And I just felt like such a, like a goddess when I was like an eight-year-old roller skating. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, like, I'll never not hear that song and just like I'm at skate ranch it's like the 80s and I'm feeling this roller skating you know that's a silly example it's not really a moving one but no but I, that's that's good I mean it's, it's so powerful it's 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 funny you should it's funny you should say that because listen to this last one I remember listening to this masterpiece back on VH1 when I was in middle school and people were like OMG she sounds so boring and now years later they understand the lyrics and they appreciate a real musician Oh, yay, that's great. But isn't that great that he, he's awesome. got friends who have come round to appreciating the song that he was listening to when he was much younger, <laughs> and now they've grown up, they understand that it's that it's good. <laughs> I still just can't get over it when I play concerts and, like, people are there to see me and I talk to them sometimes if I'm, like, you know, if it's a more casual show. it's just I always forget that, like, oh, people get to, like, go live their lives with my music on in the background. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and how that has been able to be something that makes people happy. And that's something that I never want to ever like forget or take for granted. Yeah. It's a really special thing. And I think especially now during COVID, like I got to play some socially distant shows outside last week for the first time ever this year um, in front of a crowd. And it really was like an emotional thing for myself and the band and the audience because it's like, you know, we are all just trying so hard to get through this and like keep it together. And, you know, but we're all grieving and like, I mean, there were like just tears, like people were like, I just need to like feel my feelings and music. That's, that's what does it for us. It's like music makes you feel 
And maybe even just that line, like you make me feel, you make me feel. I mean, I think that a lot of times we're trying hard not to feel because we're afraid. Like if, what if I feel it might be too much, you know? Do you know what? It occurred to me, it occurred to me comparatively recently that when I'm alone could be interpreted as a love song to music. Oh, wow. I know. I would have to think about it. Yeah. Well, no, but just yeah. the chorus, you know, when I'm alone with you, you make me feel, you make me feel. When I'm alone with you, you are the one, you are the one. That's a lot of people's relationship yeah. with music, isn't it? That they listen to it yeah. on their own and it, Absolutely. it up, and it uplifts them and it and it grounds them and it, it does whatever they they need at that time. They let music do that to them. Yeah, that's and, that's brilliant, Jim. That's why you're that's why you're like the the songwriter there because you <laughs> make that connection. I totally feel that. Like I can picture people like, you know, when they steal a moment to themselves and they have their like headphones on, it's like, you know, sometimes I can't put music on cause I'm like, I really don't want to feel stuff right now. Like it makes me feel too much. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. um, that's really a fun observation. I like that. It's an important part of 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 who you lissy are really is that you are this spring this fountain of emotion that's that's got to come out all the time is that how it feels for you yeah and it's exhausting but you know <laughs> it is what it is you know i might have like apparently like a borderline personality disorder which as i've seen a therapist over the summer she's like i don't really think that that's true but one of the things that when they try to what that means to you is like having like an emotional hemophilia and it comes and goes. I don't have it all the time. It's like situational. So I don't think I'm really diagnosed as anything, but I really resonated with when it comes to like our emotions and our mental health, there's so much stigma, but like if you were a hemophiliac and your blood couldn't clot, like people wouldn't look at you and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, why can't you stop bleeding? Um, I think there's something interesting in that to me that I think legitimately maybe there are some people who have a harder time like clotting their emotions. This thing that I have for sure, that's my ego. That's like, I'm different. Nobody understands me. Like I'm over here. They're over there. I mean, I think that there is some of that that goes on. That's really just like, get over yourself. You have a big ego. And then I think there's more to it than that as well. There's people who maybe come into this world as really emotional people, depending on the circumstances of them growing up, whether their emotions were validated, you know, the most minor things and how people react to you and react to your emotions and your sharing give you these like tiny traumas throughout your life that lead to all sorts of narratives and stories that you have about yourself. Like, oh, I'm a handful Mm. or I'm difficult or I'm annoying or I'm weird or I'm And then, you know, here you find yourself, you know, you're an adult and you still are trying to like get through life with these like limiting beliefs that you have about who you are and how you are. And, oh, I always do this in love or I always end up this and, and just all of this, like all this bullshit and all the stories and this programming that like we all kind of walk through life with. Yeah. Not just artists or musicians. When it feels like too much, I kind of can get a little scary where like I kind of give up hope. But then when I have hope, I'm like the most hopeful person ever. And I'm like little orphan Annie and I'm like, come on, guys, like we can do it. You know? (laughs) Yeah, I definitely have a lot of questions, especially now. Like what in the hell is going on? What 
is life. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Artists in general just aren't always willing to accept things at face value. And it's like, I, I know for myself and other artists, I know there's kind of just always this longing for truth and understanding and, and you, you get closer to it, but you never quite get all the way there. Mm. Yeah. And sometimes I think there's this one rapper that I like, and he has a song and he's like, write a song, write another song, but it's all the same song. It's just one long song. And I always liked that because sometimes it's, you kind of, you do revisit these themes and it's sort of like all of your material lined up is almost just like one long song as you like are yeah. continually coming back to these questions about like love and purpose. What, what would you love to do next? What, what would be your sort of ideal next creative step, do you think? I think of myself in a lot of ways sometimes as being like a bit of a tourist. Like I don't really belong anywhere. Like even my house here, I'm not really here a lot. I don't feel like I really belong where I grew up and I don't totally belong here. And it's like I can go to England and feel comfortable there. Or I can mm. go to Nashville and feel comfortable there. And I've always sort of had this thing like, what would it be like to just be like a normal person who just like lived somewhere and like had a family? Mm through all of this kind of waiting around to do what I love to do, it's like reinvigorated my uh, sense that like, I'm not ready to like retire and settle down. Like I'm ready to make a really beautiful record and have a really vibrant next chapter of my career. Well, I'm delighted to hear that because there's always room in the world for another brilliant record and especially one from you. Uh, good luck with it. And uh, well, let's hope to speak again soon. Thanks for chatting to me. Awesome. Well, it's been so nice talking to you, Jimmy. Take care. Thanks again to Lizzie. Her excellent catalogue is widely available all over streaming services. And I've put together a little Spotify playlist of the things we've written together. Just search for Here's One I Made Earlier, Lizzie. And if you've enjoyed our chat, do comment, rate the show and uh, subscribe wherever you get podcasts because all those interactions help us get seen by other potential listeners. And of course, subscribing means you won't miss our next chat with an esteemed musical creator. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs>